We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order. Oh, and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Benedict Macon-Cooney, who is the Head of Technology Futures at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And you got my name right. It's, I know it's a bit of a mouthful, so uh, <laughs> very good. <laughs> Glad to have been able to uh, do that. Um, so uh, the first thing that uh, I'd like uh, to ask is um, we're mainly going to be discussing uh, these two uh, papers uh, the Institute have recently um, published on technology and uh, coronavirus. Um, before uh, the recent um, COVID-19 pandemic began, what were your sort of um, thoughts generally on the way that technology could um, combat pandemics? Had that been something that you'd been thinking about uh, beforehand? Um, I can't say we were that prescient. I mean, we had been thinking about how you look at health as a global public good, essentially, um, using sort of some of the means of technology to, say, join up biomedical data sets, how you do sort of large scale, like machine learning of the kind of like collection of the data. Um, and so sort of particularly in drug diagnostics um, and like, you know, where companies like Benevolent AI are doing drug discovery using such large scale data. Um, and we've been thinking quite deeply about how you transform systems to kind of allow that uh, kind of transformation. But um, I don't think we'd actually looked specifically at pandemics. Um, but, you know, having looked at back at some of the discussions of people like Bill Gates and, you know, some of the epidemiologists having this. I mean, it's probably a bit of an oversight, but, um, you know, we had been looking about how you join up uh, global health systems uh, to basically look at health as a common collective goal. Um, just because, I mean, you know, if you look at the difference in a, a system such as the UK to, uh, you know, take, you know, Africa, which, you know, we're seeing now some of the difficulties around the response, um, you know, some of these healthcare systems are only spending 10, 12, you know, dollars per capita per person. And how you sort of accelerate discovery in the West and then do technology transfer and then sort of unleashing some of these, you know, new drugs and vaccines, et cetera, into these markets that are desperate need of it was sort of a big area of our focus, sort of given our work primarily focuses on, or, you know, it's sort of that combination of both UK and Western policy and then our advisory work within 16 African countries. Mm. And um, moving on uh, to the first paper that we're going to be looking at, which is a uh, price worth paying uh, tech privacy and the fight against uh, COVID-19. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting um, reading it is that in the beginning of um, the paper, you talk about um, an aggressive use of technology to help stop the spread uh, of the virus. Do you think that um, in terms of the way that technology has been used in the past in uh, dealing with issues like pandemics and with uh, famines and floods, that we haven't been as aggressive in terms of pressing the case for technology uh, as we should have done? Um, yeah, I think that's undeniably true. I think probably across all sort of realms of the public sphere, we haven't 
looked enough at the adoption of technology into ways that can sort of assist the system in dealing with uh, these issues. Um, I mean, if you take some of the countries that have been more aggressive in their adoption in technology at this time, um, you know, South Korea, Taiwan, um, you know, in particular stand out, um, you know, they were sort of, I, I guess in some ways they learned the lessons of the previous um, outbreaks in, of SARS and MERS and sort of reordered their systems and their legislation to allow for a more aggressive adoption of technology to deal with it, you know, in you know, very specific forms like, um, you know, granting greater level of surveillance and uh, data access to healthcare, um, particularly health ministers um, and, you know, some of these sort of GPS location uh, tracking ideas, you know, there, there are trade-offs with that, you know, and that's sort of one of the issues that we pick up on surveillance and privacy um, in a way that, you know, it, you know, we have to have those public forms of debate about what this actually means. Um, but clearly, you know, we have some of these tools and are disposable and we can use them in far more um, uh, you know, beneficial ways to society, provided we put in the, you know, the right guardrails and safeguards. Um, you mentioned there uh, the different uh, nations that have been um, fairly successful in terms of utilising technology like uh, South Korea and Taiwan. Do you think that um, part of uh, the issue with the implementation of technology in um, Western countries like uh, Britain and like uh, the United States is that unlike countries like South Korea and Taiwan, there is not quite as much of uh, an embracing of new technologies in, for example, the United Kingdom and the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I mean, you obviously have to create the kind of right culture, right? And I know people sort of talk about this sort of, you know, reforms to the social contract as sort of, you know, uh, in sometimes a bit of a, a loose term, but, you know, you have to think about how you build those consent mechanisms and the, the right sort of public consent to get, you know, uh, to adopt these technologies. We've obviously had some issues in the past, like care.data, um, you know, uh, you know, and I think that was some of that was both a design problem. There was also a sort of a lack of building the right kind of mechanisms and getting on board the healthcare providers as well as clinicians and sort of GPs on top of this. Um, but at the same time, we've now moved forward with some of our um, technical capacities in this area that actually mean that you can have far more privacy preserving technologies. Um, that, you know, can, you know, be utilised, you know, for the common good. And I think we need to have a much more in-depth debate about that uh, in the public realm, um, you know, in the way that isn't just sort of this complete sort of what is actually quite binary or sometimes kind of falls into these quite amorphous terms of, you know, surveillance and um, uh, without actually really digging down to the granular detail of what that actually means and what data can be used for and how it can be, you know, protected at the same time, you know, what, you know, say on, you know, some of these biomedical um, data sets, you know, if you have a consent mechanism that, you know, might give some of your data over in specific areas, but, you know, protect your sort of, you know, as anonymized or all that, and it can be used for then, you know, the discovery of drugs, etc. You know, I think people should be thinking about that quite differently. And, you know, there are huge benefits to this and there are huge flaws within the current system of healthcare delivery. Um, uh, that need to sort of be addressed and we need to you know, think far more uh, uh, cohesively about how we adopt technology into that uh, sphere. 
do you think part of the issue, and you mentioned um, uh, safeguards a moment ago, and you mentioned it in the paper as well, do you think that part of the uh, issue is that, for example, with um, sunset clauses, which you mention uh, in the paper, as a means of ensuring um, that these legislative um, mechanisms that are imposed because of uh, the virus don't outstate their welcome, do you think that part of the problem is just communicating uh, what, for example, the sunset clause is to the general public? Because I, I imagine that there will be a lot of people in the general public who might never have heard of that and so may presume that the sort of legislation uh, in relation, for example, to technology might just carry on even after this uh, crisis has been dealt with. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, probably you don't want to be using the term sunset clause as you're sort of describing to the, the general public this, you know, is probably on the policy wonky side of things. Um, you know, but I think if you're clearly communicating that the collection of data is time limited and for specific purposes, um, you will get a different sense of um, public conception of how that is. But again, it probably also goes to who is communicating as well. Um, you know, if you you have a trusted brand like the NHS and most people do trust their clinicians and their doctors um, uh, you know as well you know broader sort of healthcare system and they're probably less likely to trust a you know the secretary of state um, you know uh, around such issues and so it's about then I guess building the right kind of like communication mechanisms as well not just the getting the legislation right it's about how you then you know as you say you get those messages across to the people and who should be delivering it and the really important questions uh, you know and I think we need to have a lot more you know I guess interaction between you know the politicians and the providers in how you sort of co-design and work together to you know to, to change these systems and then communicate them in a way that then builds public consent. Um, now, turning to some of the uh, specific examples that are utilised um, in the paper, one of the ones that I found particularly interesting um, was uh, the discussion about the use of um, 3D printers, uh, particularly in relation um, to making up for the shortfall in um, PPE uh, and other um, equipment uh, utilised by uh, healthcare providers. Do you think that part of the issue with the use of 3D printers is simply down to cost? Um, well, I mean, this is sort of, in some ways, a bit of a, a new area, right? Which is uh, like 3D printing, probably, I guess, however, sort of eight, 10 years ago when it first came out, was sort of heralded as this sort of breakthrough technology. And you sort of have that sort of Gartner's hype cycle kind of thing where it's like, you know, this is going to transform all these vectors of society. And then it doesn't immediately, you know, you see things like prosthetic limbs for ducks and, and whatnot in some early use cases. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things with this sort of open source debate with the ventilators was there clearly a lot of a lot of goodwill around this and a lot of people were trying to then you know quickly design systems that particularly as you say a low cost and, and do it but there is also a, a sort of a trade-off with standards which has kind of uh, been seen with some of the, the failures of the design so far um you know and i think these things have an application uh, and they you know they're sort of in an early use case in this sort of broad sense. Um, but again, there was a big sort of question about how government clearly communicates the needs, you know, working with clinicians again to get the design right, because as much sometimes as, you know, this is an engineering um, problem, it does need to then work again clearly with the sort of the healthcare system to make sure that it's up to the standards. Um, otherwise, you know, there's big safety issues. And I think 
you know, there's potential in this area, but um, I think, you know, it just needs a little bit more thought and guidance and, and working through with the healthcare system. Um, and probably if you look at where we are in now, I mean, as you've seen sort of some big um, um, uh, successes so far in the ventilators, I mean, it still needs to ramp up, but there is also a big question of how you can deliver low-cost ventilators into developing nations who some of them have, you know, uh, I mean, only a handful in the entire country. And we're going to have to think more innovatively. Um, and that could be a 3D printing solution, but it also could be through other means um, to begin to deliver uh, these on a mass scale into countries that are probably going to be looking at, you know, uh, a significant need in the coming months. Um, now, you mentioned uh, there uh, how there are certain countries that have quite a, a little uh, amount of um, ventilators and other equipment. Do you think that one of the outcomes uh, from this pandemic will be uh, more of a, a push to greater interconnectivity between nations, ensuring that things like ventilators and PPP are more easily able to go from nation to nation, uh, whereas now some of the issues that have arisen have been in the transportation mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a will in some places. I mean, you know, uh, but I think there's there's a big political risk right now, um, which is, you know, you're beginning to see questions of reshoring, sort of, you know, like rethinking through manufacturing with potentially some of the the risks that, you know, these supply chains have not, you know, they've been very, very good um, under sort of normal conditions, but a big shock to the system has led to, you know, uh, major questioning about how, you know, even you shift a manufacturing base within particular countries. Um, and, and the worry is, I think, that, you know, many nations might begin to be looking inwards rather than sort of outwards at this time. Um, you know, and obviously our hope is, you know, and, and if you can begin to build those right form of um coordination mechanisms at a global scale and bringing in not just you know the sort of you know the reforms to the institutional architecture which are probably necessary but at the same time beginning to explore a much deeper collaboration with uh, technology firms and um, a lot of these companies that have shown a, a very you know a, a very collective will to try and solve these issues and coming up with very innovative solutions, how we begin to sort of build that into our, our, our system going forwards. And I think there's a big sort of question whether that can happen. And, you know, I think there's going to be a risk that you will get rising nationalism sort of building off the last few years um, where it's already happened in many face, places and sort of, you know, with countries like, you know, let's just sort of take the prime example at the moment who, uh, you know, in sort of geopolitical terms, um, uh, you know, US has had a very, you know, a very insular view on this. And, you know, the, the sort of the war with China that preceded this, I think, you know, there's a risk that that can escalate. Um, and I think we just need to have a, you know, there needs to be a, a very broad conversation um, among nations of the willing about how you reorder the sort of the institutional global architecture and both do, to my mind, how you do an acceleration of technology and science and innovation in Western nations, but also look at how you do technology transfer into the developing world. Because, uh, you know, for years we've been, you know, there's been a sort of big focus on 
elements such as governance, which are really, really, really important and, uh, and increasingly important. But at the same time, we've just seen how, you know, it's not even a two-track system in the world anymore. It's, in, it's just increasingly uh, disconnected in the capacity of nations and the ability of the nations. You know, even if you take, you know, we work on delivering electricity into Africa and, you know, there's still 600 million people that don't have access to ele electricity. And, you know, you need to think about a 21st century infrastructure building um, which is a much more mutual combination between sort of the nations in the West that uh, are still wanting to sort of look at things in global terms um, and working with these nations to build their capabilities in the long term. Um, you mentioned um, uh, deficiencies, for example, in uh, electricity in Africa. And one of the things that I found interesting from um, the uh, second uh, paper, uh, Digital Policy uh, for a Lockdown, How Tech Can Help Adapt to a radi uh, Radically Altered World, uh, was the statistic that um, broadband, for example, 6% uh, of the US and 7% of the UK's populations lack internet access. Now, do you think that that is something that going forward, um, following on from when this is resolved, is going to be a major uh, focus of government to ensure that if something like this ever happens again, that there aren't people in, for example, the United Kingdom who aren't just completely cut off from uh, other people because of a lack of internet. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's obviously been a big push over, I mean, every government and sort of party political manifesto will have a you know a broadband for all and you know we had the big uh, debate about whether the state or uh, you know the, the private sector should be delivering that at the last general election here and i think you know there's a, you know there's a huge cost sometimes to those sort of last mile parts of infrastructure but again you should be looking at like there are solutions to that i mean there are you know there's different ways of delivering that potentially in the developing world as well with some of these, um, you know, sort of the Google Loom project, you know, looking at balloons and Starlink and some of these satellite-based potential universal broadband, uh, broadband coverage. But I think, you know, in particularly in the, the developed world, I think, you know, everyone should have access to the internet and we need to think about how we deliver that in the best way possible. Um, you know, unfortunately, some of these rural communities if you're trying to do um, uh, you know, fiber optic delivery or sort of the traditional infrastructure, it can cost billions and billions of pounds. Um, and, but we need to think about it in a way, you know, that actually you know, does that and is effective. Um, South Korea has obviously held up as the example on this. They did a, a you know a big um, private sector push in the early 2000s uh, when they spun out um, the. Uh, the telco from uh, government and sort of put in place provisions that, you know, as part of that, they had to begin to deliver uh, broadband to sort of across the nation. Uh, and I think, you know, everyone should be connected and we should think about that a lot more, a lot more uh, uh, deeply. Um, and particularly as you're seeing now, one of the big issues with some of these digital solutions is clearly the vulnerable populations that are, you know, as you say, do not have access or even in sort of care homes right now, um, we're seeing a sort of a big, um, uh, you know, um, impact on on these um, communities and places like Facebook have already handed out portals to do remote monitoring. And we do have devices now that can connect these in, you know, in different ways. And so I think all of these things should be uh, deep, deep questions of public policy in the coming coming months and coming years. 
Um, you mentioned their uh, connectivity. And one of the things um, that he's mentioned in uh, both of the papers is um, management and management uh, efficiency. I think you mentioned in the uh, first paper, uh, the NHS working with um, technology uh, companies to predict where ventilators need to be, where staff need to be, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that this kind of uh, integrated uh, analysis of, well, we need to have such a thing here and such a thing there is going to be influential on the future of, uh, of policy making and planning for crises uh, like this? I, I think it should be. Um, I mean, I think it's one of those things that, I mean, I think we sometimes overestimate our digital and te- technological capabilities. But, you know, if I was running any form of uh, um, public service provision, I wanted to be understand how to deploy it in the most efficient way possible. Um, and if technology is part of that solution, I mean, it is obviously part of that solution, we should be thinking about how we integrate those as deeply as possible into, into our services. And I think the NHS platform that they are developing is a really positive step. I mean, I think there's still going to be some, um, some questions about, or at least some retrospective uh, on uh, on the companies that are involved in that, uh, and that's not to say that they shouldn't be involved. I think they should. I think you know, governments should be working far more closely with with um, companies that have much deeper technological skill sets, uh, and think about how you co-opt that into public services in a way that is, you know, really, really improving the delivery of services. Um, I think we're probably going to have a debate about how that's been done, um, because obviously in a term of crisis, it kind of happens quickly, um, and I think that's you know, a necessity, um, but we should be thinking far more innovatively, innovatively and creatively about how we do these solutions in, in, in the future. Um, because, you know, as we've articulated for a little while at the Institute, um, I don't think the debate over the size of the state is the one that really matters today. It, you know, it's how efficiently you can deliver public services and how quickly people can sort of live their lives now um, you know, via technology, um, it's kind of mad that a lot of our public services are still so far behind and so unresponsive to user needs. Um, you know, even something like filing tax returns, like, uh, you know, it's kind of extraordinary that people can't do this in just a very, very quick, efficient way. Um, uh, you know, and sort of digital IDs has been a big part of our thinking on this as well and how you create or unlock some of these mechanisms in the public sphere, but again, in a way that has to be privacy protecting. Um, so I think, yeah, we should be having a, a broad discussion on some of these um, solutions and trying to work them through. I mean, GDS um, have been in place now for, uh, you know, eight, eight or so years and, you know, been doing some some good work, I think. Over the last few years, some of their momentum has uh, stalled, um, obviously having been a, a project of the previous administration. Um, but uh, to my mind, we need a sort of a much firmer and quicker acceleration of uh, technology into the public sphere and delivery of public services. Um, now, you mentioned uh, privacy uh, protection there, and that is something that um, comes up repeatedly in both of the uh, papers. Do you think that ensuring that... Um, data is used in an effective way but ensuring that um, there is still an amount of privacy for the people who are providing the data is going to be one of the the great challenges in convincing people of of embracing technology more yeah I mean I think I think the sort of the general conception is that 
people understand the utility of such things, but you know, you don't want to, I mean, the extreme end of, of sort of some of this sort of data and collection is obviously the Chinese system with things like social credit. And I don't think we're ever going to be at risk uh, of, of such a system in, in the UK and, you know, nor should we have such a system. Um, but there are, you know, there are elements which I think, you know, which particularly in healthcare, I think is the, is the primary example of where there is a good utility to, or, you know, when I say a good utility, let's say a huge social benefit and potential fundamentally shifting healthcare outcomes if you use data in in the correct way. Um, but obviously people don't want things like, you know, say it to be impacting on, you don't want to say your healthcare data to be, to be leaked to the home office uh, or, you know, or, <laughs> you know, and there are, you know, in say in the US, for example, you know, insurance-based system, um, you know, there's a very, very good reason why you won't want to provide uh, healthcare that might, uh, healthcare data that might change your insurance premium. We should always be looking to protect those, um, those types of um, you know, leakages, or let's say, or usages. Um, uh, but I think, you know, there are so many different elements of, of data being used for good that can be done right now um, that we should just be, you know, as I say, accelerating it into the public sphere. And I think healthcare is probably the most the primary use case at this current time. Um, now, one of the um, other things that is particularly interesting and is the focus of uh, the second uh, paper is the use of technology in regards um, to education and ensuring that, uh, particularly during uh, this time when all schools uh, have been, if not all schools have been closed, um, do you think that part of the uh, issue with the integration with technology, with learning, is that a lot of the ways that uh, we learn and the way that we do um, A-levels and degrees, etc., is very much behind the technology uh, that we have at the moment, that it's not sort of like really gelling well because the systems are decades old. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean... You know, as someone who studied economics and spent, you know, hours and hours looking at sort of, you know, abstract algebra and whatnot, I mean, we can think about these things in far more interactive ways that can begin to use sort of real world application into that. And this is not to say these things aren't ever substitutes, right? These things are always complements, um, you know, in the same way that, you know, you're not just going to have everyone just sitting online and going through lectures or doing their classes because, you know, teachers and that sort of like personalized part of learning can be hugely, you know, I mean, it is, you know, massive to outcomes. Um, but at the same time, we can think far more creatively about the delivery of like particular parts of education. And, you know, um, and I think technology can be, you know, a huge, hugely beneficial aspect to that. I mean, even take something like, let's take sort of physics, like, you know, sometimes, you know, looking through again sort of a calculus of what you know velocity and all this might be you can actually do interactive based learning where you plug in different parts of the equation you know you can see the flight of a, a plane and what the different vectors how it might influence it right and it sort of just gives that conceptualization of what these things sometimes mean um and i think it's you know these things could be really uh, really really interesting and you know we sort of talked about it even like uh, you know not to sort of sound a bit too on the sort of far down the line but even like something like vr you could 
you could have a you know sort of a greater understanding of say you know saying you're doing something like military history you could be sort of live looking at what a battle might have been happening learning the strategy of it right and i think these things sort of augment people's learnings and they don't replace some of the previous parts of the system they just they can just complement it if they're utilized in the right way um and you know from my mind you know particularly is if you look at the way that you know more and more generations just get on you know obviously they're getting more and more online and they're looking you know digesting content in a very different way um you know whether that's even through video and that and i think you know education has to sort of keep up the way that i guess you know consumers or you know people consume information um rather than just trying to sort of fight against it and you know not reform in a way that is is reflective of more more uh, modern trends um, now, um, prior to working uh, at the Institute, uh, you worked for uh, the Treasury uh, when Tony Blair uh, was Prime Minister. Uh, so obviously, you will have an idea as to how um, uh, the current uh, incumbents of, of Number 10 and Number 11 will be uh, dealing uh, with this situation. Do you think that the way that they have been dealing with it has been effective? Do you think that there have been some things that they could be doing uh, that could be better in terms of their approach? So I should add, I joined the Treasury one month after uh, uh, Tony stepped down. Um, So I was uh, just see the transition between Gordon to Alistair Darling as Chancellor. Um, And then lo and behold, the the financial crisis sort of struck a few months after the right at the beginning of my career. Um, So it's sort of a good reflection in uh, in crises i guess of different types but um i mean in government can always improve um and you know i think right now there are sort of particular elements i think if you look at some of the policy making that's come out of the treasury um i think it's been reasonably unprecedented um you know and we're sort of in a big expansionary size of sort of public expenditure again which is completely necessary um in a way which is also sort of slightly blown out some of the previous sort of left-right dichotomy over some of these uh uh issues um and you know i think they're doing a very good job actually um where i would say the failing has happened so far within the system is it's just that central coordination, really. Um, it's, you know, obviously this is an unprecedented crisis, um, but it's not unforeseeable. Um, and there are costs. I mean, I, I sometimes think back to sort of the way that politics works in such situations, which is there was a, an example of when the H1N1 um, crisis um was sort of bubbling and everyone was predicting that you know that would have a huge huge impact and you know huge amounts of deaths and the french uh minister of health bought 600 million euros worth of you know vaccines and equipment and lo and behold it sort of didn't blow out in the way that was expected and she was pilloried as being a sort of paranoid freak you know and like cartoons basically sort of saying you know what a waste of taxpayers money and all this kind of uh thing so politicians probably don't get much upside to preparing for these things. And I'm not saying they sh- then shouldn't, but unfortunately the sort of the system kind of doesn't and sort of the broader media ecosystem, how it plays into that can also be pretty tough on politicians trying to, uh, uh, trying big projects or such things. And failure is a, 
you know, far more uh, uh, hammered, I guess, in some ways. And so it creates a risk aversion within the system. Um, but at the same time, where we look at the response right now, you need, you know, just a far greater grip on some of these issues, testing being primary among them. You know, one of the things that we've looked at and our report looks at from the internet policy side is looking at government from a sort of not a departmental kind of level, but from a portfolio based. And, you know, right now, you know, I think you should have a minister of testing. You should have, you know, ministers that are focused all on specific issues. Um, and where it seems to be, I mean, obviously, with having the prime minister out of action, um, for a couple of weeks as well. Um, there was sort of a void of leadership, um, but it does seem that there isn't a really strong central coordination mechanism. They are overwhelmed and not seemingly reordering the capacity of government to be able to deal with that. Um, so one of our experiences that seems to be coming up is that there are a lot of people trying to offer interesting solutions, but you know they don't know the point of contact within government and nor does it sort of uh, seem to be taken up very often. And I think there needs to be a much sort of more effective um, uh, reordering around that side. So, you you know, you are bringing in expertise. Um, you are sort of increasing the capacity of government to be able to sort of uh, triage and sort of then put in place some of these mechanisms, whereas at the same time, you just need a far, far stronger central coordination. Um, and also to that sort of, ends communications probably needs to be um i mean it was i think there were some missteps in communication in the uh early stages um uh, and potentially also you know there'll be the retrospective on the downplaying of the um potential um impact of this which we'll sort of have to you know where countries like iceland who started testing on the 31st of january obviously then the more drastic measures of sort of lockdown which were implemented in New Zealand and other places. Uh, you know, there are comparative um, lessons um, and examples of countries that have dealt with this incredibly effectively, even on the, sort of the German side, which you know is a good sense of de decentralized testing, which has been you know incredibly useful to the response. Austria has come out of this very, very strongly. Um, and we need to far greater lessons from countries that have dealt with it effectively. We need to take on solutions from wherever they originate. There seems to sort of be a sense that, uh, you know, if it isn't sort of done in Britain or, you know, made at home, that, you know, it's, it's not the right response. Mm -hmm. And that contact tracing will be, it's going to be an interesting example of, of that. But yeah, I, I think there just needs to be now. I mean, obviously, exit strategy is going to be the big part from our perspective, and there needs to be communication around that and a very clear communication on how the system, all the different systems are playing with each other and how they you know, integrate with one another and how we're basically going to get out of, out of where we are today because a lockdown isn't sustainable, nor will it be sustainable politically uh, as other countries have started to get a grip on this. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been uh, great to talk to you. It's been a very interesting um, discussion. And I've got uh, one final question. Now, of course, uh, because of uh, all that's been happening uh, with uh, the coronavirus, um, many people haven't been able to see their loved ones uh, and get out and about. Uh, so my final question is, when this is all resolved, uh, what one thing 
that you can't do now are you looking forward to being able to do? This is a good question. Um, So I, you know, I very much miss my daily squash game, (laughs) which, uh, you know, which is uh, just a, you know, sort of a regular scheduled thing and just getting out and burning a bit of energy. Uh, You know, we shifted our sort of daily state sanction exercise. Um, Strangely, I think one of the things that, I mean, you know, friends, family, um, I kind of miss just being out in nature a little bit. Um, and I think I've spent so much time online as someone that's also proposing digital solutions that I might just want a bit of time in, in nature and walking in the mountains or something and disconnecting a little bit. Oh, well, I think that's a great answer. It's something that I'm uh, certainly looking uh, forward to, to doing as well. Uh, thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget that you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean or YouTube. You can follow us at Debated Podcast on Twitter, like us, Debated Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to email us, either about appearing or making a comment or reaction to the episode you've heard or any other episodes, then email us thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.